Our Father in heaven, I ask that you'll bless this last hour of this day like you've blessed other hours in this day. That you would find a way by your Holy Spirit to use the Bible to speak to each one here. Even with different messages to meet different needs. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before I was married, I had a cat, and uh, my cat's name was Tishka. Uh, Tishka means kitty in some language, and um, Tishka was a boy cat raised by a boy, so he was very masculine, and uh, even though he had a name that sounded kind of feminine, but he didn't know that because he doesn't know human language. And uh, so, for example, when I would feed Tishka, I never, ever made a little bowl and put food in it. I would take a little handful of food and scatter across the yard. (laughs) And he had to race to get it before the ants and the birds and whatever else. And uh, I just was raising my cat to be a strong cat. He... Uh, He became my cat because he would climb trees, jump on a roof, and then crawl over and jump in my second-story window. And that's how he became my cat. So I knew that he was up to, you know, being tough. Went, welcome, ladies and gentle sirs, or gentle sir, more ladies and one gentle sir. Heidi, when she married me, didn't particularly like Tishka. He was a little bit too much boy cat for her. He could purr, and then he could scratch, for example. And he one time scratched her on the face when she was trying to be really, really sweet with him. And for Heidi, that's just about the unpardonable sin. And uh, so Heidi did not like my cat. I didn't say anything about her dog, did I? I didn't say anything. But anyway, <laughs> she, she didn't have- She didn't like my cat. Then one day, I put out ant poison because we had a problem with ants. And Tishka found the ant poison. And Tishka ate ant poison. The effect of that on Tishka was really very sad. He developed diarrhea, vomiting, foaming. He looked like he could hardly think. He he could, like, if you tried to make him stand up, he'd kind of fall down. And I didn't think he would live through the night when we found him. But it did something for Heidi to see him like that. He no longer seemed like a ferocious animal. He seemed like a needy pet. And she began to mother him and she force-fed him charcoal, and she made sure he got liquids, and he hovered on that balance between life and death for about 10 days, and then he recovered, and that was nine years ago. He didn't die till last summer, lived to the ripe old age of 16, which is quite a bit for a cat. No, he did not live to 16, though. I'm thinking, 
He was born in 99, and it was last year, so. Anyway, getting up in that range, you know? That, that was, was getting up, getting up there. We're not yet in 2016, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, what I learned from that experience is the value of letting people help you. Do you realize, young people, that when Jesus asked for a drink of water from that lady at the well, that it made it much easier for him to help her? When people help you, it puts them in a mode where they're willing to receive some service. And it is sensible for us that we not try to act like we always have no need, like we're always strong and able and we don't have any problems. We don't glorify God so much by saying we have no problems as by admitting we have problems and knowing but we admit that we know God can help us with our problems. Someone asked me for two children's stories, and that was the first one. Now let's do a review. I'm not a preacher. I'm a teacher. And for me, long-term retention is more significant than people feeling like they've been blessed in a sermon. Who remembers anything from the last five days of what's been shared? I'm talking about things I've shared because otherwise I want to know if you remember it right. But do you remember anything that I've shared in the last five days? I know you remember something, but who would tell me one thing you remember? One idea that stuck out. One idea that's, like, helpful. What's one courageous thing? Go ahead, ma'am. Okay, the idea that to memorize the Bible makes a tool that the Holy Spirit can use to really help us. Good. Someone else remember something. You raised your hand, I think. The higher power versus lower power in the will. So God has given us... He's given us these higher powers that are designed to help us make our choices, but he's given us the lower powers to get us moving, and then they reward us. So you feel lonely, your higher power helps you find the right person, you get married, and your lower power says, wonderful. Or you're hungry, that pushes you, your higher power says, I'm going to eat at Potluck, there's good food there, and I didn't know it was carob. But anyway, I didn't know. I found out too late. So there's, there's, there's good food there, and you take the good food, and then your lower powers reward you. They say, delicious, that was nice. Aren't you glad you have lower powers? We're glad that God has given us those lusts. It's not like he gave them to us to test us. He gave them to us to help us. But where do they get us in trouble? It's when, when, the, steering, when the accelerator tries to steer the car. That's when you have trouble. And who remembers anything else we talked about here? What's something? When you compare the wisdom of Solomon with Jesus. Okay, so Solomon, the wisest man, and, and the Bible contrasts him with the wise men of his age, right? With the gurus that were all around. He was wiser than all the gurus. People traveled long distance to see him. And then what Jesus said is one wiser than Solomon is here. That was Jesus we, you don't need to go find a guru. You have the red letters in your Bible. They're amazing. The, whoever you think is like the wisest person ever, he's just not it. You have it in your Bible. Good. Thank you. You remember anything else from our time here? What's something? Okay. So the, the philosophy 
of how you find truth. Some people rely on their reason, some people on their gut feeling. That'd be Pentecostals and Buddhists, for example, on their internal feelings. It'd also be a lot of people who come to church because of the music. That'd be the thing right there that's getting them. If you're going to be very consistent, the Jewish religion and the Catholic tradition, they have the very same foundation for their faith, and that is a mixture of authority and tradition. They just acknowledge different authorities and different traditions, and that's why they amount to two different religions. What do we acknowledge as the only ultimately reliable source of truth? That's the revelation that God has given to man in the Bible. God challenges all other claimants to, to authority to, uh, to this challenge. Can you accurately predict the future? Can you accurately tell the ancient past? The Quran uh, makes no significant predictions. And the Book of Mormon is just a mess when it goes to the ancient past. The Bible stands alone as a book in that regard. Do you remember anything else we talked about? What's something? If you're going to teach young people, profusely illustrate, because people remember your illustrations more than about anything else you share. Good. Sister Jane. Okay, so to say that in our third grade lingo, lingo, we would say that a lot of us know better than we do. And the distance between what we know and what we do is a shame, right? <laughs> and it, it's a shame that ought to be reduced, not by forgetting things, but by doing better, right? And, and the gospel's involved in that. Good, thank you. You remember something. That's it. When you, when you teach young people, be sure you're not a theoretician. Be certain that you're addressing the kind of questions that they're feeling. If you don't address those, those questions are going to stop them from even listening. Uh, for example, a young man who is struggling with masturbation can't even really listen to what you're trying to say in Bible class all year long. He can't really pay close attention. Until this issue is resolved for him, he is going to not be gaining much help. Remember anything else from what we talked about? What's something? Okay, this idea that Bible should not be the easy A. Bible should require some devotion and study and systematic study. If you take your chemistry book and every morning during the school year, you open it up to a random page and read for 10 minutes, a random page every day all year long, how are you going to do on your chemistry exam? It's not because chemistry is too hard for you. It's because there are very few things that you can learn well by a random uh, perusal. The Bible is no different than chemistry in that regard. It requires a systematic approach to gain serious benefit. And um, that's an important lesson. Remember, anything else? Yes. We looked at this in three of the four Gospels. They all say a little differently, and they all throw new shades on it. But Jesus, when he told Peter that you're going to deny me three times, he said, you are going to be converted. He said, you are going to strengthen the brethren. He said, meet me after I'm resurrected. He said, let not your heart be troubled. And uh, I was glad that Brother Dant, uh, did I get his name right? He asked me to find the quote that I made reference to, that our ability to help people is proportionate to their... Uh, confidence and our confidence in them. And I went and tried to find it, and I could not find it, but I did find it. 
The word isn't confidence. The word is belief. And you can find this in Fundamentals of Christian Education. This is a much, a much less paraphrased quotation of it, that our ability to help people will be proportionate to their belief in our belief and confidence or appreciation of them. I bet someone here on your phone could even find it. You know, if you find it, tell me. I'll just let you read it to us. Fundamentals of Christian Education, our, their belief and our belief in them. Does anyone else remember anything here that we talked about? I really enjoy this kind of review because I think for many of you that heard this one thing, it's, it's moving the thing from short-term to long-term memory, and that will just make it be twice as useful. You, yes, brother. I, I, so that's getting to the, to the conclusion of the thing. That, it's getting there. I grew up in Alaska watching a lot of TV. I had my own TV and my own remote control, and I used it not to leave, and my parents thought I was a good boy. But I stopped watching TV while I was in Alaska because God reached me, not through my mom, not through my dad, not through my pastor, but through a hippie Sabbath school leader who was really a consecrated man. And uh, the Bible promises were powerful, and that's what gave me power. Good. I'm glad you remembered that. Someone else remembers something. Yes. Okay, why don't you read it to us? Yeah, it's a simple idea. Your ability to help people is going to be proportionate to what they, what they think you think about them. If they think that you like them and they think that you expect good things of them, then you're going to be able to help them. And if they think you don't like them or they think that you don't expect good things of them, you're not going to do much good for them, even if you preach at them a great deal. Do you remember anything else? Yes. Likaviki. Likaviki, who was faithful, and God honored his faithfulness by a miracle. Very good. Yes, sister. Ideally... And this is the way you ought to speak and teach, is that someone shouldn't have to trust you to learn from you. You should, I mean, speaking as a Bible teacher, if you're going to teach chemistry or American history, they're probably not going to be able to find those things out for themselves initially. I mean, they might need to trust you some. But if you're going to be teaching Bible, you should be able to connect them direct to the source where they believe what you say because they see it for themselves. Because we're trying to lay a foundation that's going to work out in the long term. And when they believe it because they just love us, we're not setting them up to handle the future challenges very well. Okay, we've spent a third of my time on review. But you can do this kind of exercise yourself after you, like, listen to decent lectures. If you'll review it, you will help move that stuff from short term to long term. And that's just a great thing to do. What I have here on the board, let's just go there. Turn to Romans 4. Our topic tonight is when righteousness by faith is impossible. When righteousness by faith is impossible. And let me just tell you what I'm trying to say, and then I'll see if I can prove it to you. It's impossible to have righteousness by faith if you do not have faith. And faith is taking God at his word and depending on that word to do what it says. So unless you take God at his word and depend on that word, unless you have this experience that we call faith, it's impossible to have righteousness by faith. Or to say this even a little more harshly, if you have that academic habit of doubt in the way that you approach Scripture, that does not take every bit of it as an inspired authoritative source, 
that very academic discipline in the Bible is called unbelief. And unbelief is the antithesis of faith. And there's no such thing as righteousness by unbelief. Maybe that would be called Catholicism, but it doesn't work. It's not real. Uh, So that's where I'm going. And now let's see if we can get there. Are you in Romans 4? Romans 4, look at verse 17. Uh, Romans 4 was written for an age that had better attention spans than we do. It has some very long sentences. And verse 17 is in one of those very long sentences, but we're just starting in the middle of it because I don't think I can hold you through the whole thing. So I'm not there. Just a moment. Romans 4, verse 17 says two things about God that I want you to notice. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations before him whom he believed. So just listen to the last half of the verse. Then I'll have to explain the first half. Even God, and what does it say about God? Who quickens the dead. Now, quickens. Do you all know that old English verb, what that means? Makes alive. God who makes dead people alive and calls those things which be not as though they were. We're trying to learn something about faith this evening, and and I want you to start with these two ideas in verse 17. One is that God brings the dead to life, and he speaks of future things, often in present tense. Uh, That had, not understanding that second point, confused Ballinger. Have you heard that name, Ballinger? Ballinger saw in the Old Testament references and prophecies about Jesus' ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. They were written in present tense. One that really got his attention was Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is in present tense. You know Isaiah 6, I think you do. That's that prophecy where he says, uh, Here am I, send me. But he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and his train fills the temple. Ballinger saw that, and he realized, wait a minute. This puts Jesus in the holy place before the cross. Because Isaiah was written before the cross. And that idea was the beginning of a slippery slope that led Ballinger right out of the church. But do you see how verse 17 offers a solution to that? Does God speak about things that are not as though they will be or as though they are? You know, sometimes even as if they already were. Uh, God speaks about future things as if they're very real. Jesus used this principle in a passage that doesn't make any sense unless you're a Seventh-day Adventist. It's the passage where he was talking about the resurrection to the Sadducees. And what he said there is that God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, if you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, you would think, oh, they're already living. They're up there in heaven. That's what he's talking about. But if that's what he's talking about, that doesn't say anything about proving a resurrection. But if they're still sleeping in the grave, then that proves that there's going to be a resurrection. Jesus proved a resurrection by the fact that God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob after they were dead. Uh, 
Sometimes a devotion to Scripture can go even deeper than we think it can or should. Jesus found proofs in the Bible where we might not have even seen evidence. If that didn't make any sense, you can ask me later, because I don't have time to try to make it make sense right now. But Jesus understood, and Paul understood, and Abraham understood, that God speaks about things that are future, and then you can be sure they're going to happen when he speaks about them in present tense. So how does this relate to Abraham? I think Abraham is remarkable in the Bible. His faith is amazing to me. And let me explain like one of the ideas that just really catches me. If I had a son, I don't have one, but if I had a son and God asked me to offer him up on a mountain as a sacrifice, um, wow, what a difficulty that would be. The one major step is that God would have to convince me that it was him and not Satan masquerading. And God hasn't given us any tools to know how Abraham figured that out because Abraham didn't have a Bible to rely on. So whatever method he used is not relevant to us. But we have a method, and what's the method we have? The Bible. And so if God does appear to you and ask you to offer your son, you should just know right off that's not him. I hope you'll know that. But suppose we skip that problem, and I do know it's him. Yet for me to offer up my son as a sacrifice is nothing compared to how difficult it was for Abraham. Because when Abraham took a knife up to slay his son, there had never been a resurrection in the history of the universe. No one had ever returned from the dead. And there was no direct statement about a resurrection from the dead. Abraham had never heard of a resurrection from the dead. He just figured that there must be a resurrection from the dead. Because he had two statements from God. One, that Isaac should be killed. And one, that Isaac was going to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham didn't figure he should have to choose between the two. So he looked for a way that they both could be true. And what he came to was the doctrine of the resurrection. That's what you find in the book of Hebrews when it talks about Abraham. That's pretty incredible faith. But you're in Romans 4. We want to look at it here. Let's go to the next verse. Romans 4, verse 18. Speaking of Abraham, it says, Who against hope believed in hope? that he might be the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Uh, Who against hope, that's an idiom we don't use, but we have one like it, that is when it seemed hopeless. Abraham believed when it seemed completely hopeless. Uh, The reason we're studying about Abraham is because the Bible uses him as a model for how righteousness by faith works. And this is the passage that does it, very plainly, and so we want to see what is it about Abraham's faith that makes a good model for righteousness by faith. And here's one part. When it seemed hopeless, he believed. Why would he believe when it seems hopeless? That sounds kind of foolish, kind of like the leap in the dark that scientists talk about. Uh, Brothers and sisters, my faith that I have in creation is not a leap in the dark. I don't think God ever has asked me to make a leap in the dark. What he's done is he's given me evidence, 
and he's asked me to make a leap based on the evidence, even though I can't see exactly how it's going to go. But the evidence, it's like I would have to ignore evidence to disbelieve God. Faith is based on evidence, not on guesswork. So, but what about Abraham? If he believed when it seemed hopeless, how's that based on evidence? The evidence is in the end of verse 18, according to that which was spoken. Do you see that there in verse 18? It was the word of God. So Abraham Abraham had the word of God. That was what he relied on. He had the hopeless situation, the fact that, well, you know his hopeless situation. We talk about it more in the next few verses. He didn't think about that. Verse 19. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. What I almost preached to you tonight was a sermon that I talk about weak faith and strong faith. But there's no time to do it. But you know the website audioverse.org. You ought to listen to it. To find a sermon there by me on faith, I'll probably talk about what the Bible says about weak faith and strong faith. What it says here is Abraham was not weak in faith. But then what does it say he did? He considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old. One thing Abraham did not think about when he had the word of God was his own weakness. Uh, I've worked in the canvassing field a bit in my life. And uh, I remember my experience in high school where I was asked if I'd want to join the canvassing team and I said yes. But I found myself when I would canvass one day a week that's how it was at my academy the first year I did it. I found myself dreading my canvassing hour or two all week long. Like all week long, I was anticipating negatively with fear my next couple hours canvassing. And that was week after week after week after week for the whole school year. Then at the end of the school year, I was asked, do you want to do it again next year? That's a hard question. It depends whether you ask my lower powers or my higher powers. Part of me doesn't, and part of me does. The part of me that did thought like this. I figured that I had never in my life done something so useful as canvassing. I mean, meeting hundreds and hundreds of people who otherwise wouldn't have a chance. And it was interesting because, um, you know, the different ways people learn, like by their hearing or by seeing or by, by doing. Uh, my two really great methods are to see and to hear, which perfectly matches school as typically done. So school was easy for me. So if you talk about the, like the academic disciplines, uh, if there's math, I'd be at the 99th percentile. If you talk about science, I'd be at the 99th percentile. If you talk about some of the other things, well, pretty much I'm going to be right here unless you count spelling. And that's going to be right here. I got a D in that when I was in high school. And uh, I really, really didn't like that. Believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, I have at one point forgotten how to spell my own name. And that was like eight years ago. I was, I was just there, and I couldn't, nothing looked right. 
and, um, and I, I go through waves in my spelling. There's never a very high one, but there's a lot of troughs. And when I get into a deep trough, my spelling is, r- I know at least 10 times more words than I know how to spell when I'm in a trough. But thankfully, once you get past elementary school, that doesn't show up too much. And so academically, I was used to really excelling. But you know where I was when it came to sales? Just below average. And what made sense to me when I was making that, that decision right there is that my below average sales was accomplishing far more for God's kingdom than my above average math and science. So that even though I have an aptitude in one area, I, if I started thinking about my usefulness, my usefulness was somewhere else. Can you sort of figure that? And so that's when I said, yes, I want to do it next year. And it wasn't until after I decided that that God took away a large portion of the fear that was associated with canvassing for me. I didn't tell that to use a story to make you canvas, but if that's what it does, that would be a great thing. I really don't know why I told you that story. Let me see if I can remember. Oh, my own weakness. If you think about your own weakness, you will excuse you from many of the things God would like to have you do in life. Because God, frankly, uses weak people. And if he only used strong people, he'd be using the arrogant ones at the same time. And he'd much rather use weak people. So Abraham didn't think about his own weakness. He didn't consider his own body now dead, being about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Uh, The way I word that in my own mind is he ignored factors that were out of his control. I remember I was leading a team in northern Maine around Caribou and Presque Isle. And uh, we got there on a Sunday, and I'll just summarize and say it was the best week we had in the state of Maine. The people up there, it was kind of like a Bible belt in that part of the state, and like 40% more spiritual than in Portsmouth and down along when you get close to Massachusetts. I really enjoyed it. Then on church, on church, on Sabbath, we went to church, and uh, we were introduced as call porters who were in the area to canvas. And a, but no one told the church we'd already been doing it for five days. And a little old lady came up to me during the intermission between Sabbath school and church, and she began to warn me that the area we were in was a very difficult area, that the people are very unreceptive, that they aren't going to want anything, and that I shouldn't be discouraged if we don't sell anything. It's just the way it is. And I was trying to find, I had a hard time not smiling while she was saying that. I was trying to figure out how to tell her that it's not true. (laughs) But I've found it now all over the world. Many of us think about how hard our neighborhood is because it makes us feel a little bit better for not talking to them. We feel a little bit better for not getting involved by excusing ourselves that Sarah's womb is dead. There's just no sense in trying. But if you have the word of God, you don't need to think about external factors that are out of your control. You could just take the word of God, and you could run with that, and God would make his word does not fail. You can put a lot of weight on it. I don't say you can put an infinite weight on it because you don't have an infinite weight, but you can put as much weight as you have right there. 
Let's look at the next verse. Is that 20? He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. Uh, the way I illustrate this in my mind, and I have seen a lot of people talking about faith using chairs, and I don't like it. I don't like it when people talk about faith by sitting down in a chair and say, this is, you have faith in a chair. Uh, wh- why don't I like the illustration? Because the way I understand faith is faith is something you do with the word of God. If you have confidence in me, don't call it faith. If you have confidence in your textbook, don't call it faith. If you have confidence in this chair, don't call it faith. Because faith is an experience with the Word of God, and there's nothing like the Word of God that you can really put your weight on. But what happens with the Word of God is that when God gives instructions or counsel or promises, like Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. That's a real good example. When you come to that promise... To depend on it requires some internal work, and you need to step up on that promise, and the Word of God will hold you up if you step on it. Excuse me. But if you don't step up, you know what you do with a promise? You trip over it. I would trip over this chair if I didn't step on it when I was walking that way. I'm just trying to make an illustration of what you see in verse 20. That is, when you approach God's promises with unbelief, they don't do you any good at all. That's the, like the main thought in the first couple verses of, of Hebrews 4. Let us also fear, lest any of us, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. It's that idea. Promises help you or they hurt you, depending on whether or not you meet them with faith. So he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. I want you to see a couple of verses about this. Turn your Bibles to Psalm, Psalms 116. Psalm 116 and verse 10. It's a very simple idea, and I'd just like you to think about it. It says, I believed, therefore have I spoken. There's more there, but that's the part I want you to see. It's just a simple idea to make a correlation between what you believe and what you say. Uh, I want to make it so clear. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I believe that Jesus is coming soon. But when I say it, it has a different effect on me than when I just keep it to myself. I believe that Jesus paid for my sins and that when I sin, it hurts him. I believe that, but when I say it, it has an impact on how I feel about temptation and weakness and about just giving up. When we speak what we believe, it gives the truth more power in our life. In fact, this idea of speaking what you believe this is the mindset of faith. It's the spirit of faith. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians, Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 13. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 13. Well, silly me. I was looking on the wrong side of Romans for it. 2 Corinthians 4 
in verse 13, it says, We, having the same what? Spirit of faith. Call that a mindset of faith. That's what the word spirit means there and in many places in the Bible. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.